As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Thanks for coming, Daniel. I've got a very simple question. Uh, what do you think of Tottenham? <laughs> this is the greatest club in the world. Yeah, hello everybody and welcome once again to The View From The Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today are The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt-Brook. On today, it's an interesting show because we don't have a match to look back on in midweek. And so we'll be going deeper into the situation, some might say, some might call it chaos at Spurs, assessing the women's team and the academy, both of which, to, without any spoilers, are not in prime condition, shall we say. We'll also try and talk a little bit about the interview that Daniel Levy did apparently a month ago at the Cambridge Union, but it's only just appeared on, on YouTube in the last 24 hours. Um, some interesting things came out of that as well. But let's start with an absolute high. First of all, let me just say hello to Jack and to Charlie. Prove that they're here and I'm, I'm not going to impersonate their voices. Hi, Jack. How are you? Good, thank you. And you, Charlie, okay? Very well. How are you? Yeah, really good, yeah. Let's start with some good news. The under-17 team has won the Premier League Cup. So it's a trophy for a Tottenham team. They went to Nottingham Forest last night and bashed up the uh, the, the locals in, in the final. But I think they won 5-1 in the end. It should be noted that Forest had 10 players for most of the match and nine for the last 30 minutes as they got two red cards in the course of the game. But you can only beat what's put in front of you. And, uh, you know, even allowing for the extra space caused by having an imbalance of numbers, the performance of the Spurs set forward, Mikey Moore, who combined the positional play and coming back and linking up play of Harry Kane with the outside of the foot passing of Kevin De Bruyne, no pressure, Mikey, um, was pretty extraordinary. He is also six inches taller than all the other boys playing at that level. But that doesn't reflect, guys, and this is just something that, because we were talking, you know, we've talked so much about the how the club is at the moment, in the in the academy, the under twenty ones league, Spurs are in real danger of being relegated into the the academy championship. Is made up of those handful of clubs outside of the Premier League elite who didn't close down their academies when the costs became prohibitive. At the moment they are second bottom, I think, of the fourteen teams with only Leicester City below them, and it's maybe just ask you straight away. These academies, much is spoken about them. Fantastic players do emerge from them. How damaging would it be, uh, Charlie, if Spurs' academy was to be relegated this year? Yeah, I mean, clearly it's not going to help when attracting, you know, when making the pitch to, and it's such a you know fiendishly competitive world, trying to attract the best young talent. It doesn't speak to a kind of commitment necessarily to the academy and developing young players. So it would be a big setback. I mean, they, you know, you really do need to be making the case to uh, young players and their parents that it's something that you're taking seriously. And that's pretty damning. It, it's been a really, really disappointing season. And yeah, I think reflects that, that there is some disappointment in what's happening there. I want to try and assess how the Spurs Academy is doing because under John McDermott, um, who went on to do things at the FA and what have you, it was generally felt that it was an incredibly good academy 
teaching boys to play the football the proper way, looking forward, etc. Under more recent managers, none of whom would have been that interested in promoting young talent, I wonder whether it's gone on the back burner. But this is just a thought. Of the current starting eleven. Kane came through, and of course he's an absolute legend. Oliver Skip came through. Behind them we've got Winks, who's at lone Sampdoria right now, and in danger of being relegated, by the way, in a, in a pretty poor team. And I think I was thinking about it, you know, but we're going back into Mr. Times. Livermore came through and played for England. Huddleston came through and played for England. Carl Walker-Peters has had a good Premier League career. But compared to the likes of Manchester City and particularly Chelsea, uh, could you say that the academy is, is succeeding? I certainly think the academy has succeeded a lot over the years. Like you have to take a long-term view with this kind of thing because it's obviously such a long process. You know, these a lot of these boys will come in at the age of I don't know seven or eight, and so really it's a it's kind of twelve years until you you see the benefit of that. So it's not really something that can be judged. I think on a on a year year to year view, clearly under McDermott the academy did brilliantly. That generation that you mentioned, the boys slightly older than Harry Kane, you know, there's all as well as the ones you said. There's also Stephen Colco who's had a good mm-hmm. career. Andros Townsend still playing in the Premier League, had a great career. Um, and that's even before you get to Kane, who's you know the best player in Tottenham's modern history. So it, it had a, what you might call a sort of purple patch, and then there's other players who came through as well who've had good careers. You know, Josh Onoma, for example, uh, Tanganga still in the squad, sure, uh, hasn't I played a huge amount him, this yeah. year, but is is still a good player and will either have a good career, at, have a good career, or quite possibly makes make Tottenham some money this summer or down the line. So it has been good. Certainly, I think if you speak to people who work in in this particular sector of the football industry, there's a suggestion that maybe the the players who are coming through of the sort of younger generation are not quite as good as the you know the sort of Colker Townsend, Livermore generation, or maybe even sort of Kane, Winks, Skip that great run that Spurs have had. That also, and you know, there, there's plenty of potential reasons for that. Maybe McDermott leaving as a factor. Also, it's difficult for the Spurs Academy because they don't pay the young players a lot of money. You know, they're competing and they're fishing in the same waters as Arsenal, Chelsea, lots of other big academies. And also, you know, Man City, and Liverpool and Man United do a lot of recruitment in London now. So it's a hugely, hugely competitive market. And some clubs are willing to throw huge amounts of money at young players' parents, obviously, and, and agents, and some are not. And Tottenham run a tight ship when it comes to youth salaries, and that means that it's harder for them to to find the players. Sorry, just just, just let me jump in there and to, to to back up what you've said, actually, from not anecdotal evidence, but actual um, evidence. I'm not going to give the names out here because it would embarrass I think the player I was working with on on the radio was somebody who'd re- been a recent manager of a lower league club, and he'd gone to Chelsea and asked them to borrow one of their players. They think they'd get the man is a good coach. And so they said, yes, indeed. And this, Now, this is, this is seven or eight years ago, not more, but about seven years ago. And he said, of course, your club will have to pick up half the boys' wages. And he said, well, what would that amount to? Now, this is someone who had not made an appearance for Chelsea's first team. He said half his wages would be £15,000. He was a Chelsea Academy player on £30,000 a week. Now, the person I spoke to has no reason to lie to me. Um, I've half confirmed this with others. And, you know, they, when you when I heard that, there'll be players in Spurs' first team squad are on 30 grand a week, won't there? One or two of the, of the ones who are, you know, just, just making their way. It's incredible thought. Just incredible thought. That, um, and if you multiply that by half a dozen of the better players in Chelsea's academy, and, of course, they see it all as a perfectly good investment because if you look at the kind of money they're picking up for if they decide to sell Levi Colwell, they get a load of money for him. The names go on and on. Mark Gahey, look at the money they got for Gahey. Incredible. It's worth remembering that City, it's a bit unfair on the Tottenham Academy, I think, to compare it too much to City and Chelsea Academies, just because the City and Chelsea Academies are trying to do, do different things. Like City and Chelsea, have they have really big year groups. They recruit incredibly aggressively across the UK and abroad, although obviously since Brexit it's become harder to recruit the best 16-year-olds from the EU. And lots of these boys will never get in, they'll never get close to the Chelsea team, but they might get loaned out to partner clubs and they will eventually be sold for a profit. And obviously, you know, City have this incredible structure in place with CFG to allow them to do that. And there are so many young players who pass through City or Chelsea academy level and are then sold for a profit. That's never been Tottenham's intention. Like Tottenham just don't, 
you know they don't have big year groups they don't they don't go out to recruit players who from miles and miles away who will never really play for Tottenham but they might make them some money down the line like that, that just isn't really the model so I just don't think it's necessarily helpful to compare the Tottenham Academy with the City and okay. Chelsea Academy when they're trying to do different things. The obvious question yeah. on the back of that is what are they trying to do? I suppose find players to play for Tottenham. Okay. I think they're not and some of those players won't play for Tottenham and will make money but that's not like the strategic goal in quite the same way. They do I know from as well from speaking to Dean Rastrick on this top he's the academy manager and he's he's talked about you know for for anyone developing young talent and this may be more of a personal thing but I think it's a club thing as well it is about developing players to have careers they view they would view someone like Andros Townsend as a massive success you know it's about yes yes the dream is that they play for Spurs but also developing players so that they can have careers in football like that's first and foremost what it's about because every you'd have to be crazy not to appreciate the fact that the chances of anyone making it at a club like Tottenham uh, or Chelsea or City, they're even the chances are even less. But even at a club like Spurs, the chances are minuscule of most of these players making it. So you you have to be realistic and say, but you know them having good careers in the professional game is also a success because that's also the odds are also stacked against you if you want to yeah, do. Yeah, you 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 totally you're totally right. But Spurs fans listening to our voices will go, well, what's they would literally be holding their hands uh, with their palms up and going, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, I would just make the point that that's the reality of modern football. And if you're, you know, with the standards being what they are, with the expectation of success being what they are, with the short-term view of most supporters being what they are, we just we just don't live in a world where you have the, t- you know, the chance of making it. There's a real alchemy and set of circumstance. Everything needs to align in a way that happens very rarely. Even if you think of, obviously there are some players who are just so supernaturally talented or work so incredibly hard that they will make it. But for the vast, vast majority, they need a lot of things to go right for them. You know, even if it's just that there happens to be an opening at a club at that time for a young player to step into. And often there isn't. And you see players, you know, someone like Ollie Skip even, who was so, who's been such a success story of the last few years, He's had to this season have the good fortune and bad fortune for them, but the injuries to Bentoncourt and Basuma have meant he's got his place back in the team, having had the bad, the misfortune himself of getting injured last season when he was doing brilliantly. But that's, you know, often that's the way it works. And he's taken that opportunity. But there wasn't a time, you know, it wasn't that long ago he was not playing at all. And with Spurs only playing two central midfielders and he was then behind Basuma, it looked like he wouldn't get much game time. There's also connected to that is the point that young players are as good as they are allowed to look because of the chances that they're given. And I know that, you know, people might say, well, since Skip, you know, who who else has come through? But the fact is that Tottenham have appointed three managers in a row without the slightest interest in bringing through young players. And that means, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying that if they, you know, if they'd appointed a more progressive manager in 2019, 2020, 2021, the team would now be full of academy products because I don't, I, I don't necessarily know that the talent is there. But clearly, if you have a manager who's interested in, in integrating young players, then sometimes players come through who you weren't necessarily expect, expecting to be first team players. And I do think that the Spurs Academy's ability to deliver players to the first team is obviously also down to, is there a first team manager in place who wants to play academy players? That's a really good point. And I do think that speaks to something we've talked about a lot on this podcast recently. That's about alignment and that's about is everyone is everyone's visions the same? Because you can talk as much as you want about Academy and how important it is to you. But like Jack says, ultimately that needs to correspond then with the, the type of manager you're bringing in. And if there isn't that, you know, you look, you look at clubs even where young players have come through, often you wonder, would they have got those same chances, A, under a different manager, and B, if expectations were different? Yeah, the, 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 I mean, I, I do understand that the Premier League is an incredibly brutal environment into which to put any young player, unless they're, as you said, I think you used the phrase, supernaturally talented, like, say, um, Bakaya Saka. Um, it's a very, very, and even then he got into the Arsenal team because they. Do we think crisis. Conte would have played Saka? Yeah, exactly. He got in because I, I mean, I genuinely wonder how much would, how appeased would Conte have been when he came in and been like, "You've got Ken Stoke, We've also got this kid who he's never played. He's not really played much. He's seventeen, as Saka yep. was when he got in the Arsenal team. You know, you up for him? He would have said no. He would. He would have said no. And you know, and just to end this section, Can if we I may, sign Zaniolo. 
because there's, because there's so much because there's so much to get through if you know occasionally one needs to think the horrible phrase is outside the box i wish i had a better phrase than that i sometimes wonder um, when i look at the say the recruitment of brighton who aren't with the question with the exception of evan ferguson necessarily bringing through their own players very successfully either I sometimes wonder if all the money spent on the academies will be better spent on scouting. Let the youth teams do what they're going to do um, and just leave, I don't know, leave Charlie in charge of those and spend all those millions on scouting. I sometimes wonder if that would be a better use of clubs' times. I would say on Brighton, though, they are they are held up as best practice and for good reason. But it is slightly different at a club where expectations are so different. I do think... You, it's easier to blood younger players, unproven players, when coming mid-table is not a disaster. And in fact, coming mid-table has for Brighton been a really big achievement over the last few years. Like I, I, I do have some sympathy if you are the Spurs manager. I don't know. Would, would would the fans and everyone be accepting of the short-term pain of making signings that let's not let's not pretend would be it would be deemed as a very underwhelming window for Spurs if they went and signed a bunch of 20 year olds from South America it just would be and you know they as much as someone like Conte understandably expect more instant results and I guess ideally you do both but that's not always that easy yeah I don't blame I don't blame Conte and Mourinho or even Nuno for not really playing young players because if you're like the the fact is that if you're both Conte and Mourinho had the job of trying to get Spurs into the top four with a first team which has the sixth biggest wage bill in the country. So it's always going to you're you're always going to have to be overperforming to try and get Spurs into the Champions League, and it's always going to be harder to do that. You know, of course, you're going to want established players to do that. I, you know, I remember the big fuss about. Do you remember that big fuss about whether Mourinho would play Troy Parrott in kind of February March 2020, just before COVID. Uh, it was a huge, it was like the big talking point for a month or two because obviously Kane and Son were both injured at that point. And so uh, Mourinho was left having Lucas Moore up front. And I can see why, I can see why all the fans wanted Parrot. But if you're Mourinho and you're just thinking, how on earth can I try and get the team into top four? I can kind of understand why you would go with Lucas or even Delhi as a, as a, as a, as a striker instead of Parrot, who was so young and untested. And I don't want to, I, you know, I certainly don't want to criticise Parrot, who I hope has a really good career, but, you know, Parrot's currently playing for Preston. He's doing pretty well, but he's not scoring a lot of goals. Scored last night. And you can, yeah, I don't, Although so I, I don't in think a 4-2 defeat ended in a massive brawl around the two technical areas. <laughs> so that was all good. Even though I'm sure at the time I probably wrote a piece saying, it's surely time for yeah. Mourinho to play Troy Parrot. Is this the moment when and Troy Parrot shows the do, world, Was he wrong? Is is this Troy Parrott style? We should say as well, in interest of balance from Mourinho, he did give um, Tanganga his chance. Yeah, uh, yeah, he played Tanganga a lot out of nowhere. Really, you remember he started against yeah. Liverpool when Liverpool yeah. were battering everyone, and Tanganga played brilliantly. I'll make the point, um, as I say, that Troy Parrott did score last night, but also that Lucas Moura, his only goals in his Spurs shirt this season have been for the under twenty ones, and that he's been banging. Oh, the brace of goals that he's got means he scored seven percent. I'm, I'm reliably informed of all of the under twenty ones goals this season. All right, that, that's the um, that's the academy. We also mentioned uh, on Monday's um, award winning podcast that the, the women's team, like the men's, are currently without a manager, um, have an interim coach in charge, and are languishing in ninth place in the WSL table, facing the very real threat of relegation. I would say they're not doing great at the moment, and this comes after breaking the British transfer record to sign Beth England from Chelsea, centre forward, in January. So where has it gone wrong for Spurs? Let's ask former Tottenham goalkeeper and the women's football editor for The Athletic, Chloe Morgan. So yeah, I think there's a lot that's gone wrong for them this season. Uh, obviously, Skinner joined Spurs in uh, November 2020 and then sacked in March um, last month after nine consecutive defeats in the WSL. Uh, obviously, they had a 2-1 loss to, to Liverpool, who'd only re-entered the league again this year. So they should be expecting to pick up points a, against them. So I think that was a little bit unexpected. But, I mean, at that time, it had been, I think it was until October, uh, in their victory against Brighton, the 8 miller They'd picked up that single point, but since then, they've conceded 21 goals in nine games. I mean, last season, they seemed to be a little bit more better, a little bit more solid in defence. I mean, they never really created a lot of chances last season and relied quite heavily on counter-attacks, but they were definitely harder to beat. I think everyone expected maybe that the new signings in summer would kind of add a little bit of depth to their attack. 
They had M. Bazette joining them, and then out, uh, obviously in midfield, they had Drew Spence over from Chelsea and Amy Turner, which seemed to help things a little bit, but um, not to the extent that it, it's, uh, it's helped their progression into the latter ends of, of this season. But obviously, again, I mean, the transfer window in January 2023, and you know, Skinner made more attempts to try and bring in some more attacking presence, uh, bringing in Beth England, uh, obviously on that, that record £250,000 deal. And obviously she's got quite a few goals since January, but hasn't quite had the delivery to make a real dent in things. And also bringing in Mana uh, Iwabuchi as well, but it doesn't really feel like the new talents gels that well. They don't really look that comfortable in attacking or defending yet. And um, I think Skinner, credit to her, tried quite a number of different partnerships, but, but nothing's quite seemed to to work. So I could see why maybe frustrations were, were running high by, by last month. But yeah, I mean, they could definitely get relegated. Currently ninth, they've only picked up 12 points this season, have only won one of their last games in the last five, which is just such a, a shock, really. I think considering how their, their form was last year, they finished fifth and, and people were really talking about them being in contention for the potential Champions League spot this season. I mean, yeah, the season 2019-2020, their first one in the WSL, they came seventh. Uh, the following season, the 2020-21 season, they, they finished eighth. So they've never really been in and around the relegation battle to this extent. So to see that in the last three years is, is sort of not where we expected them to be. And they would, of course, be the first side of the WSL setup to come up from the championship and then go down, which is not obviously what the league wants to see. I mean, they're such an interesting club, really, Spurs. They're, they obviously fall under the umbrella of one of the richest clubs in the world, but I never really felt that that's really translated into real achievement for them. I think it's even more interesting that, you know, Spurs, you know, and I was obviously part of the squad at, at that time. We entered the WSL for the first time in 2019, and that was the same year as Manchester United. And you can see how stark the contrast is. And, you know, Man United obviously just going through to the FA Cup final and in strong contention for their first WSL title and, and Spurs languishing at the bottom of the, uh, the WSL table. So, so not great at all. But as well as the issues they've had with their managers and players not gelling, they obviously moved from the Hive as well to, to Brisbane Road. And I don't think that venue's ever really felt like home. And there's been so much criticism as well about the way that the, uh, the pitch is and about it not really being their home ground as such. It doesn't really feel like their space. And they definitely don't seem to have the kind of level of infrastructure as the top four. And I think that's that's pretty clear. But yeah, it's going to be uh, an interesting few games for, for Tottenham. But I think if they can try and get those points against Reading and Brighton, I think they, they should just about manage to stay up this, this season. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
Hello, this is Adam Hurry, the voice of Football Clichés, a unique podcast on the Athletic Network. A football podcast you might not think you need in your life, but honestly, you will need this in your life. We've just chalked up our 250th episode, which, at a rough calculation, makes about 12,000 minutes, or just over eight days of our lives, spent digging into the previously unexcavated language of football. We've argued about what cometh the hour means, we've heard Pierre-Emil Huyberg talk about food in the most footballery way imaginable. Like, no disrespect to egg. Yeah. But I'm surprised how <laughs> yeah. flavoury it is. We've selected the pure Europa League 11. We're still on speaking terms with several mainstream football commentators, and we'd love you to have a listen to us. Football Clichés is available on The Athletic and wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Yeah, welcome back everybody to The View from the Lane. Charlie Eccleshare, Jack Pitbrook and me, Danny Kelly, hoping to enlighten and inform you over the course of the next few minutes or so. A couple of short news pieces, really, and anniversaries. Um, Spurs and Brighton have been fined £100,000 by the FA following the mass confrontation on the touchline during Spurs' controversial 2-1 win a few weeks ago. We're going to see more of this because the VAR is causing the players to surround the referees to get time for the VAR to get them a decision. And this is causing tension in the in the technical areas. Um, and I think we might see a lot more of this before the, the season is up or you know, in, in running to next season as well. Let me tell you as well that on this day in 1901, so a long, 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 long time ago, a then world record crowd for a football match numbering 110,000 watched Spurs draw 2-2 with Sheffield United in the FA Cup final at the old Crystal Palace. Uh, Spurs won the replay some days later by three goals to one to take the uh, the replays in Bolton in front of just 20,000 people. Really interesting, very quickly, let me just rattle some things at you here just to show you how how interesting football was then and, and how different it was from, from where we are now. Um, obviously, Spurs became the first, and I suspect, only non-league club ever to win the uh, the FA Cup. They were in the Southern League at the time, but that was a coming phenomenon. Southampton, who were in the Southern League, had been in the final the previous year, if I'm not mistaken. The goalkeeper for Sheffield United, was William Folkes, William Fatty Folkes, who was the first the first celebrity footballer. Noxie was a great goalkeeper, particularly. He played, played once for England. Um, but because of his size, very large size, a very, very big man, uh, Folkes became a kind of, no pun intended, folk hero in the national press and was the very first football celebrity. But the critical thing to note about Tottenham's win in 1901 is that the game had not yet established itself in the south of England. It was not a, a southern game. Of the team, that the 11, because there were no subs, that won that cup in 1901, the FA Cup, not one of them was born within 150 miles of Tottenham. There were five Scots, two Welsh people, and the English people were all born north of the River, of the river Thames. Professional football comes down from Scotland, through the northwest, where it's still, of course, and that sometimes it occurs to me, it's still the powerhouse of English football. It takes a long time to seed itself in the southern part. You certainly couldn't find players from the London area who were good enough to play professional football. There's a really interesting chapter in Jonathan Wilson's book, Inverting the Pyramid, which is about specifically how in the late Victorian era, Scottish football was so much better than English football. And so lots of the best English teams in the late 19th century and very early 20th century, like this time, would bring in players from Scotland because they were technically better and they were able to play a, they were able to play a more kind of inventive technical game than English players were at the time. And it looks to me, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly I'm not an expert on Tottenham team of 1901. No, it looks to me as if Tottenham had benefited <laughs> have been, have benefited from precisely that thing by having five Scottish players in the and team and critically a Scottish manager. Mr. Cameron was a Scottish manager as well, and that, that's where the power was. Coming coming out out there it's also worth telling listeners that this is not crystal palace where this game was held is not selhurst no Park. no it was, it was the old crystal palace, the athletic the, yes the, uh, and the sort of uh, part of the exhibition grounds as were where i once saw Coldplay. oh did you and did were, you? They as, yeah. were, they, were they as poor as i might expect I had a great time. Um, okay. I don't know if you would have done. I mean, I was about 16-ish. I re- uh, yeah, but of course, then you would have been mad about them. And that, that's fair enough. But I remember sitting in my living room when they were headlining, I think, Glastonbury with their, was it Make Poverty History t-shirts that they had? Yeah. Um, my, my friend and I, we, 
both well old enough to know better. We went and got white T-shirts and wrote on them, make Coldplay history while we watched their set um, from Glastonbury. And you mentioned um, Jonathan Wilson's book. If you really want to know about Victorian football, there's a man called Paul Brown who's written several books about it, and I recommend them all to you because it's a, it's a not just a world. It's, it's like something else. It's another complete universe. Now, in the last um, 24 hours, a very strangely timed thing has happened. I had no idea that Daniel Levy, perhaps I should have known, had gone to the Cambridge Union in the middle of March and given a 45-minute interview to somebody on the stage there, plus taken questions from the audience. For some reason, that was the 14th of March, i.e. days before Antonio Conte's meltdown at Southampton. And for some reason, they've only just... I mean, maybe because at the end of Monday's podcast... I said to Daniel Levy, where are you? Let's be having you. I suspect the power of the view from the lane, um, almost unrivaled now in, in global sports terms, has forced them to put this up to show that Daniel Levy can indeed and will indeed occasionally give us the benefit of his wit and wisdom. What's so interesting about it is that so much of it is so very uninteresting. What did you make of the bits? We haven't had a chance to look at every single second of it because we only got there this morning. What did you make of it, Charlie? Yeah, I don't think it there's any huge there are any huge surprises in it. I mean, I'm generally of the belief that with very successful and or famous people, the bar is incredibly low. They basically have to be they have to speak words and come across as a vaguely nice person and we're like, "Oh my god, this you know, this you know, so when you meet a celebrity and they'll say, "Hi, how are you?" and you're like, "Nicest bloke in the world." In, <laughs> honestly, in the nice bloke in the world. Shows, somebody a comedian goes on and says something absolutely inane and everyone roars with laughter because they expect they're going to be funny it's the press conference phenomenon of a you know a, a phone rings or a manager says anything and everyone goes mad with laughter because it, they're so in awe of famous successful people so i all my view is always i'm biased but if you are a successful famous person i think do interviews because generally people you're, you're are just kind of really high ground, pleased aren't you? to be yeah. there exactly you you don't have to do much and and i think because Daniel Levy speaks so rarely there's always going to be you know a huge interest in what he says obviously and a big novelty to it I mean he taught he's asked about um you know is there not a temptation to speak when things that you don't agree with or that are wrong are said about you uh and he basically says he's just reached a point where he you know even though there are things things that written that he says are incorrect he just has to hold his tongue it struck me uh, look, not everybody has to be, you know, Stephen Fry um, in terms of public speaking. And indeed, I wouldn't have made a living if everybody could do it, uh, you know, to any great standard. But I did find, I don't know what you what you made of it, Jack, but I'll just this is just my comment. You don't have to agree or disagree. His answers, for somebody who's been the public eye for 20 years, he was very, very uncomfortable, defensive almost. And I, truthfully... He so many of the questions he answered with essentially yes or no, sometimes running to four or five words before, before ending the line of questioning. It was like somebody under pre police caution. I mean, it was a, I would have expected a little bit more expansiveness from him. But then I don't think that's that's not Levy. You know, it's uh, anyone you speak to who's spent a lot of time with Levy will say that he is. He's just not. He's just not someone who is very confident at, or it, it's this sort of thing doesn't really come naturally to him. Sure, you know, talk, I get that. Talk, holding a crowd, performing in front of people, talking, you know, talking on a stage, that that kind of thing. And he's obviously, you know, a hugely talented man in his own way. And there's some stuff that he's very good at. But I think that this kind of like holding court, like nobody would describe him as being gregarious. So even though he has been in the public, you know, hugely public facing role for the last 22 years now, he's not been, it's not like he's been, you know, doing TV, radio, um, speaking to speaking to the media all the time in a way which might make him more more used to doing this like he hardly ever speaks to the media it's funny that he's clearly very proud of his of his education because the last the last time i remember him doing an interview was to varsity newspaper which is a cambridge university student newspaper about three years ago and when he does do interviews it's always it's only for some specific reason i can say that as someone who has uh put in and had rejected various interview requests with daniel levy over the years it's not an accident. I think sometimes as well, because a few of the questions were really interesting, like that one about, um, well, I guess this is just because I'm in the media, I find it particularly interesting. But 
Uh, yeah, the question was about have there been times you've been frustrated at not being able to justify decisions to the fans? Because sometimes as a fan, that silence can be frustrating for us. And he gives basically, you know, two sentence answer, which I guess because he doesn't, you know, and I don't, I don't think that's an accident. He probably just doesn't want to get involved too much in that conversation. I mean, he's, you know, he's quite funny with it. He laughs and says probably every day uh, in response to, you know, being frustrated, not being able to justify decisions to the fans. The very first question from the, from the, from the member of the public, um, who was very pleased with themselves, by the way, was the old Jack Wilshire question was, what do you think of Tottenham? And it went completely over his head. Mm. Like he's never heard this before, um, or unless he's a very good actor and just pretended it had gone over his head. I don't think he really exists in the sort of football banter universe. No banter at all. <laughs> I don't think banter is on his um, banter. I, I, I don't know if banter is one of his. Um, well, the, the, the people, the cards. people in the audience clearly got it because they they giggled. Um, you know, like when when somebody um, passes wind in a church, but they the, the, the Spurs owner just just stared blankly into space at the question no it just felt a bit like when you're at school and you're sort of put up you know you ask a teacher something and sort of knowing that they're probably not going to get it and everyone finds it really funny yeah there was a lot of that um he did he did i mean what did you make jack of the timing not not of the putting it up now i mean i don't just don't get that but he was there literally i mean we were into probably less than a hundred hours away from the events at southampton do you think he had a remote inkling that within a couple of days of a few days of this interview he would have to sack the manager? Um, did he? He didn't give any impression that the that, that he could see the storm coming. He was a bit like Captain Smith on a Titanic. Um, hell, keep going, lads. Everything's going great. Well, he probably had an idea that he would need a new manager at the end. of the How's season. that going for you know, him? Tottenham have known for <laughs> have known this for a while. Uh, I don't think we should read too much into the particularities of the timing, just because it would obviously have been, I imagine, quite a difficult negotiation between Levy's diary and the diary of the Cambridge Union, or to be honest, of the, the publication of it, which um, I mean, I don't know why it's come out when it has, but it might not be for a specific reason. But it, I have to say, I do think it, it's just interesting to hear him talk, even though the content of what he says is not especially surprising. It is just, you know, he's, um, as we've talked a lot, like I do think it's a bit of a problem at Tottenham that the man who makes so many of the, the decisions isn't that publicly accountable to to fans for it. So it's always interesting to hear his, it's interesting to hear his thinking. And I do, and I do think that he should come on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Don't you? Oh, no, of course. Yeah. I mean, for, he would, what an episode that would be. He would get, he would get, a, a, at least he would get a civilised grilling i dare say it would be a grilling but i think it would at least be civilized it's quite interesting danny on that point about you know looking for a new manager he talks about how in this country there's a culture of the manager or head coach it being a much bigger deal uh he talks about how in europe his view is that it's less of a thing and it's more about the club and he he says i would make the observation that in europe coaches are only appointed for one or two years Whereas in this country, we're obsessed with when someone is appointed and they only have a two-year contract. How do you expect him to succeed if he's only got two years? Uh, which obviously feels quite pertinent in the short contract that Conte was on and Nuno before here. I mean, remember Nuno was only on a two-year contract as well. So yeah, I mean, clearly that is something he's thought about. Well, I mean, the truth is, it's because of the effect in our football of, and I could, I could draw a list of names going back to Bill Nicholson, um, and then coming up through Brian Clough, Bill Shankly, you know, Liverpool managers, various, uh, Ferguson, Wenger, we have it in our minds that giving them a long time at the club leads to success, where it is equally arguable that success leads to being at the club for a long time. And on the continent, they have no... I mean, you know, look at Ancelotti. He is liable to... It, it's possible, though I suspect Manchester City will have a lot to say about it. He's going to win the Champions League and, you know, end his tenure there. It's a, it is a different a different culture, but Daniel has to recognise that. It's no use just giving people 18 months or two-year contracts and hoping you're going to change the habits of every English football club. Uh, one or two other things I want to pick out that he was on about um, Harry Kane, where he was asked if Harry Kane could win a trophy at Spurs. Not only did he say, yes, he can, of course, and he, he tried to make the point that trophies aren't everything, that being a legend at one club is important, and he uh, actually talked about building a statue, erecting a statue to Harry Kane, which struck me as slightly odd as he's constantly resisted the temptation to put one up for, say, I don't know, Jimmy Greaves. 
which came up again more recently when Kane broke Greaves' uh, all-time scoring record. Um, he also talked about history, and I'll give you the quote here. If you go back in history, Tottenham was a club that had a lot of history because it had won things. I'm not sure what that meant. In recent times, it's not been where it needs to be. We're on a journey, like everybody on Strictly Come Dancing, and we need to get better success on the pitch. No one disagrees with that. But we have been in the Champions League a number of times, and we almost got there winning the ultimate, which would have been winning the Champions League. I found it frustrating because the chap on the on the stage was so pleased to have Daniel there that that was a moment where you might have come in and said, well, look, what is it you're exactly going to do to turn all this potential and this huge fan base and all those things into getting over the line, you know? I'm always the first to admit, aren't I, that it's very difficult. English football is incredibly competitive. The other thing, Charlie, I think that you noticed that in it, you, he, well, he talked, he was asked some questions about ticket prices and made a, a, in, in, some interesting observations about that. Well, this was something that a few people mentioned to me that they found interesting. I mean, supporters, because you know, ticket pricing has been uh, a big issue of late. Spurs are freezing their season ticket prices for next season. There's been are. some speculation yeah. that they were going to um, increase them. And look, we are in a cost of living crisis, but a lot of clubs are still going to increase their ticket prices. He talked about, he said, there's a conflict between ticket pricing, having the best stadium in the world and also wanting to win on the pitch and pay high transfer fees and high, high salaries to get the best talent. In an ideal world, you'd like to have very low ticket pricing and to have the best players in the world and best facilities. Somehow we have to find the right balance. And then he talks about concessions and lower prices for cup games, etc. But I know a few people bristled uh of this idea basically that which isn't what he you know he doesn't say this in quite so many words but this idea that um you know success and lower ticket prices are sort of mutually exclusive which you know and it, i mean i guess like he says it's difficult to find that somehow we have to find the right balance i mean you know i, I get it what he's saying he, he is saying that squeezing every bit of commercial advantage, because he also talked about the Formula One and stuff, you know, the go-karting coming to the stadium, squeezing every bit of commercial advantage out of what you've got is is important in a world where, as, as you know, Jack mentioned earlier, wage bill tends to dictate um, where you're going to finish in the football. I hate to say that, but and I guess that's what top coaches are paid to break that. Um, that monopoly, if you like, but um, you know, I know they got beaten by Manchester City, but Bayern Munich take the opposite view that you can squeeze everything you want, get all the commercial advantage you want, but don't squeeze the fans. I mean, I know the German model is completely different from English. I'm completely aware of that, but there they want the fans to come to the stadium at a reasonable price, and you know, Jack. Each year that goes by, even with the astonishing. Um, amount of money that people are being asked to pay to watch Premier League football, the dependence on the gate money gets less and less because the TV money so far continues to become a bigger and bigger proportion and commercial deals a bigger proportion of what the clubs actually make. Is Tottenham not one of the clubs where that is not true though? Because of how much, if you look at how much their revenue has increased since the stadium opened, it's gone up by like Tottenham's match day revenue at the stadium is huge. It's huge in the last few years. So I wonder whether... I know that in general it is true that match day revenue is not as important as to clubs because of TV money coming in. And obviously Tottenham make money through the stadium through things other than tickets alone, like, you know, beers, uh, concerts, events, That's what. That's, a, that's just another argument to have the tickets but cheaper. But match day is quite important to... to no, exactly. I think I think they, it, is, um, it is important to separate those two things because, yeah, revenue from the stadium... And match day revenue, the way football's changed so much, like you say, Jack, with gigs and and all of that sort of thing, it is different. I mean, I think the the argument you hear, and I'm sure would be t- anyone with kind of experience of running a business or running a club would tell you it's not that simple. But I think how many Spurs season ticket holders are there? Fifty thousand or something, something like that. So I guess the idea is if you took, let's say, if you took. 50 quid off of everyone's season ticket which would would make a re, you know or 100 quid you know that would make a reasonable difference to people 100 quid that'd be a lot and that'd be a, can you imagine how big a success you know a pr sort of success that would be that's 5 million maybe that is a lot of money um to a club like spurs i'm not sure but i think they they would get that back around 5 million i seem to remember from when covid happened that it was said to be about 5 million spurs got per match day 
So they would get that back one match day later. So I don't know. I mean, that's that's um, the sort of thing that as a fan or, or someone uh, who go, who goes to games feels. And as I say, maybe it's not that simple, but I think that, that tends to be the argument that's made. And I guess that's your point, Danny, about what a club like Bayern Munich does or, or how it kind of balances those books. And as Daniel says, it is, it is a delicate balance. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll reiterate, Bayern Munich is completely different in some ways because the German clubs, with the exception of one or two, and most obviously Leipzig, are owned still by the majority because of their particular rulings by a slight majority uh, by the fans. So, of course, fans are going to vote for, um, you know, affordable football. Let's put, let's call it that. Let's not call it squeezing the last drop of commercial potential out of the fans. Let's call it affordable football. And I don't want to hark back to the days when you could just bowl up and pay to go to football grounds, but it does, again, seem a, a world away. All right, well, an, an interesting uh, load of things all happening at the same time. But, of course, meanwhile, the football continues to happen. I don't know what to say about Newcastle away because even I, who are normally pretty cheery about most things, think that the you know, most recent defeat to Bournemouth has ended Spurs' chance to finish in the top four. Um, what do we want from this run of fixtures that goes Newcastle, Manchester United, Liverpool? See a different outlook, a better football or do they have to just keep grinding on, hoping that you know somehow the teams around them will conspire to let them into the top four? Well, what we want is nine points, I think. Yeah. That's what Tottenham want. I think this is probably the hardest of the three games. I think Newcastle, you know, Newcastle away is tough. Newcastle, I know they had a wobble, but I think they look like they've come out of that wobble a bit. Man United and Liverpool, I think. I mean, Man United have got, obviously, Europa League to worry about as well. They've got, you know, they have had some recent bad injuries. Liverpool, actually, Liverpool are starting to look good again. Um, but I think Liverpool could push top fragil- four. There's a lot of fragility in that Liverpool team too. I, th- I think this will be harder than Liverpool away, to be honest. That's just how I see it at the moment. And I would love to be more optimistic about Tottenham's chances for this game, but I think I would be bullshitting if I did say I was optimistic at all, because I'm not. I actually think, uh, did you just mutter there, Charlie, that Liverpool could finish in the top four? I think they will. Yeah, I think they've got a chance. They've got um they're nine points off, but they four of the next five games are at home and they've been they've actually been really good at home. They've got all their players basically coming back from injury. I mean they in their last game, which they won six one, they brought on Diaz, Nunez, Tiago and Firmino. It's pretty good depth. And I just wonder if Newcastle might have a bit of a wobble. I, I don't know, but this game on um Sunday is really yeah, really tough. Uh, there's just not there's just not enough evidence from the last few games to suggest Spurs are going to go and win. Let me ask you the question: then. You you two keep uh, you know a sort of microscopic view on Spurs. Is Clement Longley going to be fit to play? We'll get an update on that tomorrow. Yeah, um, yeah, I get so because if he, if he isn't, um, that is quite significant. Well, it might be it might be it, it can't be come on down Davinson the way he was treated in the last game. It'll probably be Tanganga, will it? I don't know. I mean, it's. Or could we go to a back four? <sighs> Don't be silly. I know. Um, I know. <laughs> it's uh, it's an away game, so it's a slightly different dynamic for Sanchez as well, if, if indeed that is a concern, which when I asked Delaney about it, he said it wouldn't be. Um, I don't know. I, I think that, that would be a big blow because Longley was actually quite good until he went off and he basically made the Son goal uh, against Bournemouth with a long ball over to Perisic. We'll, we'll get an update tomorrow on other players who've been out. Tanganga did start four games, um, not in a row, but in that period immediately after Christmas. Uh, but not really. I don't really think he's been seen since the um, that bad defeat at Leicester City. So um, I'm, I think that would probably that would probably make sense, wouldn't it? Tanganga over Sanchez. I mean, who's going to play left side? Is the only question I've got about all that. Tanganga rather is more able to play that, which would mean Romero can stay where he is. Part of the problem with Sanchez coming in is it means Romero moves over to the other side. Yeah, because I'd hate to see him doing his corner flag um, backflick with his wrong foot, wouldn't you, um, Christian <laughs> Romero? He's in my bad books at the moment, Christian. I, I know what a good player he can be. And he I actually sa- at that point was over on the right hand side. And I, I, I see him ponying about at the moment, um, and I don't like it. Um, with regards to your ambition, other than nine points, Jack, um, for Arno Danjuma to be named Spurs Player of the Year, would it help or hinder his chances if he actually got picked? 
Good question. Best thing you can do is not play, surely. Surely. Yeah, it's true. It's the... Yeah, exactly. He looks better. The more that Spurs play badly with him sadly on the bench, the better like the better he looks by comparison. So maybe we don't need maybe maybe the Dan the kind of write-in campaign for Dan Juma to win player of the season doesn't need Dan Juma to actually make it onto the pitch. I hope he does play, but I I believe it when I say it. Yeah, quite. I mean, uh, Dejan Kulusevski's form has been not not great, has it, since the World Cup. Um and indeed Prior to that, too, I'm not having a go at him. He's got you know second season syndrome. People are allowed to work out how you play. Do you remember, Danny? My prediction for this season was that Kudelski would have a difficult second season, and James Moore obviously abused me relentlessly for that take. Well, well, I, 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 right. James's attitude towards you is inexplicable to me, Charlie. But you know, um, <laughs> human beings are the way they are. Let, let's be honest. Anybody want to think Spurs can get a positive result at Newcastle? Maybe a draw. I mean, maybe they can nick a win. They've got the quality in attack, but I think that's the only way they can win is by nicking it. I, I can't. I can't see a world in which they go to St. James's Park, control the game, and sort of come out. We're talking about, yeah, they just really deserve to win that game. I think that's extremely unlikely. Yeah, and it, you know, um, Eddie Howe does what he does, and while there will be space behind the ever advanced Kieran Trippier, perhaps for Son to exploit. Uh, again, I think once again the game may be won and lost in and around the midfield area. In which case, um, it's very hard. You know, tough, tough workers though both Hoiberg and Skip are. Um, even they must run out of energy when they're never replaced and never augmented in that midfield area. Let's wait and see. Um, what have you got um, coming up for us to read in the Athletic, Jack and Charlie? Well, we're waiting to see what happens with the Fabio Pratici appeal. Yeah, that's but that true. Could go on, am I right in thinking that could go on for days and days, or am I misreading that? So the other day, the Italian Olympic Committee told me it could take up to five days, and it started on Wednesday. So it could be the end of this week, or it could be the start of next week. Yeah, I mean, that, it's weird because we, that's, we thought that would be the big thing this week, but then it kind of hasn't happened. But I've actually got building on our conversation on Monday about unconscious bias in relation to the Sanchez booing. I've had a conversation with a few people uh, about that topic. So that's going to be written up, that conversation, uh, I think for tomorrow. Um, I've also done something which we talked about in the pod about how it is we kind of continue to get things wrong as the sort of football commentariat, basically looking at the fact that how is it that no one, literally no one, saw Arsenal doing what they're doing this season I find in the age of endless takes and more information than ever before that that just didn't exist uh, just quite interesting and, wh- and why that is basically Listen if you're not already an athletic subscriber of course you can sign up and read all of Jack's pieces Charlie's pieces incredible Spurs coverage and a lot more beside on every, well, virtually every other team in the world just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for $1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, probably Monday, I suspect, when we're looking back on the Newcastle game and much else besides. Cheers for now. The Athletic.